You are talking about the nonsensical ravings of a lunatic mind. I got a bad feeling about this. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! He's looking at you, kid. What we got here is a failure to communicate. You could ask yourself a question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? I'm curious. So one of the movies, and this wasn't actually in the voting list. The one of the other movies was um, Gunga Din uh, that Holden right. put out there. Both of which yeah. are Kipling stories. I'm just curious yeah. if there's like a Kipling thing that you really wanted to get into. Yeah, I'm, well, just uh, just because classic buddy I, comedies, maybe. Well, <laughs> well, part of it was that you know the the Jungle Book was just redone and was a hit, and everyone seemed to like it. And certainly, most what most American children growing up anyway get the the disney uh you know the walt disney animated cartoon and if you don't read kipling for some reason like that's what you think of as kipling and maybe for my generation anyway the ricky tiki tavi cartoon from the 70s that chuck jones did but like you so if you haven't seen man would be king and you haven't seen kim or gunga din you haven't done any reading like you have this well did he just write stories about talking panthers like you know? right yeah I want people to think of Kipling, you know, do some little deep diving, even if it's just through other movies and not just think of Kipling as the Jungle Book. Holden, when did you first see this film? Oh, I must have been probably around nine or ten. I was like a young kid on TV uh, with my dad. So I've been pretty young, probably before before cable, really, before cable. So it had been nine or ten. So was that back when they would broadcast the entire film without any editing? Uh, no, this would be probably watching with commercials the first time I saw it, uh, you know, on, on a local TV channel or something on the weekend. Um, so yeah, I'd already been a fan of it as a kid and kind of grew to love it more as I got older. So was it, was it kind of formative? Was it one of your favorite films growing up as a kid then? Yeah, I, I, I always loved that movie. Um, yeah, it just seemed like a very adult, um, adventure to me and it just seemed like a grown up kind of grown-up action adventure movie to me back before you know Schwarzenegger and Stallone and things blowing up every 10 seconds yeah that's a that's a really good observation because I feel like modern action films have sort of immatured but you look at a film like this and there's obviously a lot of silliness right there's a lot of a uh, mm. fantasticness uh, ridiculous coincidences and, and and kind of a silly sense of mo- narrative momentum no matter what you know random things happen to them but it's right. but it's alongside you know uh, overthrowing nations and people dying and in, in very ugly ways sometimes. Uh, I think that's a really good way to put it is that there's there's a lot of childlike wonder to it alongside really serious like geopolitical commentary even. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is based on a uh, Rudyard Kipling uh, short story. And the thing that really strikes me about it when I was watching it in particular is uh, how modern it feels. And I think this way about a lot of Kipling adaptations. I don't know if it was just the way he wrote or not, but the fact that there's basically, what, two frame stories here, right? First of all, it's uh, it starts off with uh, Kipling being approached uh, by an old man, and then there's a flashback to what he's referencing. And then 
this is kind of exaggerated in the movie because in the novella it's just implied, but Kipling himself has written himself into the story, basically. Right. Uh, in the novella, it's just implied it's like him, but here they make it explicit. So it's a frame story within a frame story in a film that's 32 years old. Uh, that seems to me like a very modern thing. Yeah, and that was that was Houston, uh, who wrote the screenplay with uh, Gladys Hill, who he'd worked with before a few times. And yeah, that was kind of their invention to make it, you know, very explicitly make sure it's Kipling, because he was a big, Houston was a big fan of Kipling ever since he was a boy, which is, you know, going back to the turn of the century. It was one of his first favorite writers. So it's, it's, uh, it'd been something in his imagination for a long time. And it was just, you know, part of Houston's sensibility was, you know, you go back and look at the Maltese Falcon and, Trevor Madre, you know, some of his first great films, you know, he was really uh, ahead of his time in a lot of, I mean, he kind of, he was a very inventive guy, even when he was young. And I think that kept carrying over as was in the second half of his career. Yeah. And I think it's a particularly good choice making that explicit because so many other things in the original story uh, are meant to feel real. Um, it's a little fantastic, right. as I mentioned, but um, it's based on a real region. When I heard of Kafiristan, I wasn't sure if that was made up at first. It turns out it's a region right. of Afghanistan. It wasn't exactly its own country, depending on how you define country, I guess. But it sounded made up. And in stories like this, it usually – something like that is made up because uh, it's just a lot easier than offending anyone yeah. or yeah, having to reconcile it with reality. But uh, it's a real place, and a lot of it is – somewhat historically accurate or based on real stories of real explorers, I believe. So I right, think right. it dovetails very nicely with that to put Kipling into the story and kind of do that Cohen-esque thing where you wonder, is this something that really happened? You know, to sort of play with that. Yeah, myth, but blending it with reality and were some things that could seem realistic anyway, yeah. And Kafiristan was... uh for generations, I mean, going back, certainly when Kipling wrote the story, but even up until, I think, 1960s, it was it was even more mysterious than Tibet. It was one of those regions that since Alexander the Great, no, you know, white men of you know, any, <laughs> that anyone knew of anyway, had kind of been there and been back. So it was this very mysterious region that really until the 1950s or 60s was still untouched and mysterious and just this weird, you know, this crazy mysterious place where legends like this could grow because it was one of the last kind of unseen places on earth by, at least by Western society. Which makes it a great canvas for some speculative historical fiction like this, uh, because right. you can't prove it didn't happen. Um, right. And you're right. There's people think of, you know, the last untouched places, and it's usually what, uh, a nomadic tribe in the Amazon or something, right? Like a small group of a couple hundred people. But these were actual civilizations that were relatively right. closed off from the rest of the world, which is sort of an amazing thing to consider. Uh, so you got to give Kipling a lot of credit for even just realizing what an opportunity this was to write about. Right. So what what did you think, Slappy? I know you – I'm going to preempt what you normally say, which is that you hate audio in old films. So we could start there if you want. Were you able to stand the audio? Uh, well, one thing I didn't really notice, the, the music in the film was actually pretty understated, which sometimes I have a big problem with where they bring in big band randomly uh, into films like this. And actually it was pretty fine. The, the actual settings were fine um, for me. I could kind of tell they weren't in um, – Afghanistan, but they didn't look like a Hollywood backlot or just like the hills of Hollywood made up to look like, uh, like, uh, you know, the Middle East or anything like that. So the least there was that. The audio was actually not that distracting. It, uh, the gunfights, I guess, are the only parts where that might have been a little bit. They're kind of like the gunshots, at least sound to me too shrill, but maybe that's honestly more realistic. And maybe it's just like we like a more satisfying 
more bass heavy thumping shot in our modern action films. I actually, that's actually an interesting thing. I, I have no idea what a gun actually sounds like. Uh, sadly, sadly I do. Uh, yeah. And, uh, that's might be one of those things where the, uh, the Foley artist rendition of a gunshot has replaced what we think most of us think a gunshot sounds like. Uh, but you're right. A lot of location shooting of one sort or another. In fact, I had to remind myself to be impressed when they pulled back at one point. There was a long shot where they pulled back and there was this long column of people. And for a second, I thought to myself, why are they dwelling on this shot so much? And that's something I notice older films do a lot, right? Is they have longer shots. They're not as compact. Uh, longer attention spans, I think, maybe back then. And I thought, boy, this shot's really hanging around. And I thought, oh, wait, of course, it's not CGI. They're taking their time because right. this is incredibly impressive. They have a thousand extras here. Right. Yeah. And they shot it, uh, mostly, uh, around Morocco, not in Morocco, but around Morocco. So that's, that's, that's the terrain was, uh, Northern Africa. But, uh, yeah, it's definitely location shooting and not, uh, not a backlot. And uh, in fact, the uh, what the the city they actually the, you know, they wind up going to the the city there on the mountain they they built that they built that structure that's not that's not CGI either and that's not even you know matte painting that's not you know plywood they built that thing good crazy. which was impressive a, I could... a lot of, a big chunk of the production bu- budget was was building that. I could kind of tell that the the statue that they made of the eye looked like it was not you know genuine, but I actually am surprised right. that the rest wasn't built. That that yeah. actually looked pretty great, except for except yeah. for that one thing. But I thought that was just something they just slapped in there, you know. Right. I assume they just had a great location scout, and that was some pre-existing structure they'd co-opted for the purpose. But that's absolutely amazing. Uh, Slappy, you mentioned uh, an understated score. Well, that's a funny thing to say. Holden, you'll know how to pronounce this. Is it Yare, the score's composer? Yes. I, I don't know if I've ever really said it out loud. I, I always said Yare. I've always said Yare in my head, but I don't know. It might. It, might, it must be Yare, I guess. It, it must but be, right? Said Yare. Yeah, it Yare. Can't, or it can't Yare. be like Jerry or something. That would be upsetting. It's not fancy enough. Uh, well, so Slappy mentions the score is understated, and he's right, because I can't think of too much of it. But what a surprising thing to hear that about a Yare score, because he famously did Lawrence of Arabia, which is maybe the most noticeable, obvious, uh, showcased score in cinema history. Sure, yeah. Yeah, most of the most of the music in the film is just uh, kind of idle, background, uh, local, I guess, music, as, as, they, as they at least would think it. It's a lot of sitars strumming and a lot of just like bouncy uh, drums. And that's pretty much all of it. Anytime they're basically in a peaceful setting, there's that kind of background music to just kind of put you in the headspace, I guess. Well, that's kind of modern, too. I remember thinking uh, when I read about The Wire, the TV show, after reading it, one of the ways they tried to achieve a realism was they only used music from sources inside the scene, right? So there'd be a a car radio kind of blaring loudly or something like that. Um, It kind of felt like that to me. It kind of felt like, you know, if there's music that the characters would be hearing, fine. Otherwise, we're not going to do very much. It's always going to feel like it exists in the world. And going going back to the location scout, um, <laughs> I went back and read. I've I'm a big John Huston fan, so I've got several John Huston books, including his autobiography, uh, which he wrote before he died. So I uh, I went back to the the Man Would Be King sections uh, to to kind of refresh uh, some of that stuff, including his his thoughts on it. And uh, in true John Huston style, you know, you might have if you did a little research, you probably found out that he tried to make this started trying to make this in the fifties with. Uh, <laughs> With Humphrey Bogart and Clark Gable in the leads, and so he went. So he did uh, location scouting back then. This was after the African Queen. So I don't know if you know that story, but you know, there's uh, a Clint Eastwood movie called White Hunter Black Heart, which is a fictionalized version of the screenwriter who went uh, with Houston on that shoot, which they did in location in Africa, uh, which was really about 
uh, John Houston hunting, wanting to hunt an elephant. <laughs> he was much more preoccupied with hunting an elephant than he was this this Hollywood movie he was making. And similarly, just after that is when he started scouting for what would have been the man who would be king back then, with with Gable and Bogart. And he started, so he went to India and up near uh, Afghanistan to start scanning for locations. And that. The whole chapter where he's talking about that, it's four pages of him hunting a tiger <laughs> in true John Houston fashion. Now he went and wanted to bag a tiger. So that's uh, – so he did – you know, he did a lot. He loved to travel the world and do all these manly man things. You know, he's a very interesting character. So, uh, you know, most most of these types of locations, he found them himself on his, on his journeys, often to shoot something or find some rare whiskey or – have sex with some exotic <laughs> woman because that's the kind of guy he was. Yeah, we like to make fun of uh, modern cheap movies, uh, kind of turned out mass produced, like Adam Sandler comedies that take place in Hawaii, which are clearly just an excuse for him and his buddies to go to Hawaii for six weeks. But that's been going on forever. Yeah, except he didn't want to go to Hawaii. He wanted to go to you know, <laughs> some weird section of of Afghanistan and bring a film crew up there. And when he realized that was that wouldn't work, you know, eventually over the years when it. Re, re re came as a project. He went up in Morocco. Uh, that's where it wound up. But uh, yeah, he's he's a character for sure. It says a lot about John Huston that he can basically bang out these classic mu movies in the background of doing something more important to him. Yep. Yeah, he definitely uh, lived his life. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a good way to put punctuated, it. Punctuated with a few movies here and there. Yeah, yeah, in the background. Um, so you mentioned Humphrey Bogart and Clark Gable. I mean, both incredible actors, but it's it's hard to fathom that. It feels like it would have to be a completely different movie because when I think about this movie, I think about the knife's edge it has to walk. You have to find these characters uh, charming, but also pretty roguish. You can't right. just like them, and you can't hate them. You have to sort of begrudgingly admire them, or I gotta give them that kind of thing. And Connery and Kane absolutely make that work. It's so hard to picture other people in those roles. And the, in the 20-some years it took him between, you know, starting to want to make it with Bogart and then making it in, in 74, 75, uh, you know, went through several, you know, generations of, of possibilities. And, uh, after Bogart died and Gable was still alive, when he and Gable were making the misfits, uh, Gable brought it up again. Like, why don't we get that going again? And of, of course, Gable died right after the misfits was made. <laughs> so that put it on the shelf again. And then for a while it was going to be, uh, uh, Burden and, uh, Richard Harris. It was going to be Richard Burden and Richard Harris for a brief while, though, you know, financing never got attached. To it, but that was just kind of the germ for a while. And then he started working with uh, John Houston, worked with Paul Newman a few times in the early 70s. And that was right after Butchcast and the Sundance Kid. And just as this thing was coming together and, and Newman and Redford were becoming you know, an obvious screen pair that you wanted to get for a movie. And so he pitched it to, to Newman and Newman read the script. And he said, it's great, but I can't do an accent. Redford can't do an accent. you got to get British people. Why don't you get Kane and Connery and stop fooling around? So <laughs> the story is that it was Newman's idea after he and Redford were offering it. I don't think I got to the stage where Redford read it, but Newman read it and said, you know, this is a great story. It's a great script, but it's not us. You'll have to change it too much. Because he didn't want to just say, you know, do that thing where you they're British officers, but they don't have British accents. And they he knew he and Redford were not the kind of actors who can pull off a British accent. So rather than change it so much that, you know, you have to change into American soldiers somehow wandering around India, he just said, hey, dude. <laughs> Be realistic. Get two great English actors like, I don't know, Sean Connery and Michael Caine. They'd be perfect for this. And that's ultimately what happened. That's great. Well, that that's, I'm so pleased to hear that because I kept thinking, wow, this has a this has more than a little Butch and Sundance in it. Uh, so it's yep. 
It's, I don't know. I kind of would have been upset, though, if they basically did another Butch and Sundance right after doing Butch and Sundance. Right. Butch, Butch and Sundance in Afghanistan. I mean, it's, it's just, <laughs> you know, it, it was, it was wiser than, yeah, I mean, Redford, Redford and Newman spent the rest of their, well, the rest of Newman's life, Redford's still alive, looking for another, pro- for a third project to do. And they never found one that was up to the standards of, Butch and the Sting, so they just they, but they were looking constantly for all those decades and never found anything else, which tells you the kind of you know quality control they had for themselves. And even towards the end, there they didn't just do one for the sake of doing it, even though the script was horrible, whatever. They just said, you know, let's just if something perfect comes along, great. If not, it, we won't do it. And they never did. If they'd be if they were over anxious to do something like that, they would have said yes to this, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you're right. They just wanted, right. They certainly liked, uh, Newman loved working with, with uh, John Houston, so he would have jumped at the chance to, and he knew it was a great script to just, you know, he just knew he wasn't right for it, which is uh, one, uh, something most actors will not admit. <laughs> Newman, was, Newman was, a, was a smart enough star and smart enough of his brand that, you know, he didn't, uh, he didn't do too much of that in his career, even though certainly the kind of power and star power he had, he could have gotten virtually anything made for big chunks of his career if he wanted to. Yeah, we spent the first 10 minutes of this podcast talking about the verisimilitude and the way it mixes truth with fiction and all that. Uh, really would have undermined that to have two guys faking bad accents the whole time. Right. Um, or not faking them and pretending they're British officers anyway, and that no one noticed they speak like 20th century Americans. So my favorite bit of trivia about this film, and I'm probably stepping on something you were certainly going to bring up later, Holden, uh, is Shakira Kane. I saw that name in the credits, and I thought, oh, no, really? Really? Michael Kane's wife uh, plays Sean Connery's wife in this film. Yeah, it was originally another actress. Before they settled on Morocco as the as the filming location and started scouting there and, and hiring extras, uh, it was going to be the way – I guess I haven't read the story. Did you read the short story recently? I, not recently, no. Oh, I, I've I've read it years ago, but I think in this story she's described very fair as very fair, and the, I think there are people in F, that region of Afghanistan who are you know kind of more blonder and can be lighter skinned, and so she was just this you know this white vision, and and I think they were going to go that direction, and they hired the daughter of Roald Dahl and uh, and his wife Patricia Neal, the actress Patricia Neal, uh, and she was hired and she was going to do it and she was going to be this kind of this blonde you know vision in this in this uh outland and once they got to morocco and started casting all the moroccans of darker toned skin and darker hair they said you know it, it really it was as as fantastic as the story gets and as many jumps as there are to have this kind of pale blonde creature in the middle of that was just too much yeah so he said i I should find somebody who's who's more fits with the rest of the cast uh and find someone a a darker a darker beauty and kane and connery both immediately because she was already there he was she was already his wife at that time they didn't meet on this movie she was already michael kane's wife and she was you know on location with them and she's gorgeous and uh she wasn't much of an actress it turns out so Luckily, she didn't really have many lines, barely any lines. Um, but even the uh, – I was reading Houston's – I think it was the Houston. I read a few of the books before this. I think it was Houston was saying that because she really couldn't act, um, that moment uh, when she has to, to bite him, when you know he finally marries her and she bites him and, and the jig is up, uh, even that she wasn't – doing very well so that's why she does that thing where she looks like she's in a, she's in a trance and her eyes go way back because like they figure you know that's better because she's supposed to just kind of 
get angry and terrified and make this turn and she couldn't she just couldn't do it because she's just not a trained actress so they kind of did this thing where she's kind of trans like and all right that works it's good enough but she was certainly gorgeous and uh he she and michael kane are still married i believe yeah so they've been together all these all these decades and uh yeah it just was that she was she was on set and she was gorgeous and it didn't require a lot of dialogue and there she is yeah, well, it's, it's such an old Hollywood kind of cliche. Oh, just sit there and look pretty. You don't need to do any acting. Right. Just, just, that, <laughs> that's, all. That's, that's, what that, that's what that role required. Yeah, that's, but in this case, yeah, it wasn't uh, cynical. It was just literally, that's all we need. So, As I recall in the story, it was more of a, almost a love triangle thing. It was the thing that undid them, um, was the jealousies of, of the two men wanting this woman. And, this woman and, and I think wisely in the, in the movie script, they decided to make it more about the power of being king is what deluded him and not, not the two of them being attracted to the same woman, which is you know, a little more pedestrian. Yeah, that's modern in the bad sense, in the sense of being modern and cliche. Uh, much more interesting to have it be about power. Yes. Uh, okay, so the, in the short story, I, I think you might be conflating um, uh, Road to El Dorado on that because there's there's – in the in the short story, it's pretty much the it's pretty much the same kind of falling apart thing. It's just a god complex. And you're right. In the short story, the the entire region is considered fair skinned, and it even says that they had fairer skin than the British people that were talking. They had yellow hair. It were considered right. basically like a lost tribe of uh, descendants of Alexander and right. uh, uh, the people that came through. But uh, but yeah. So and actually, that's interesting. If we want to get into that, I haven't seen the Road to El Dorado, but that's when I watched this film. I felt like I had seen it before. And that is why it's because The Road to El Dorado was based, or that might even be the name of the film, but that DreamWorks film in the early 2000s was based hmm. on this story as the same sort of story structure. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. And, and, the, and the turn in the story where he becomes you know, obsessed with power is similar to the turn that, especially when it was going to be Bogart in, in one of these roles, that uh, uh, Bogart's character makes in Treasure of the Sierra Madre, where there are they're buddies they're in this they're very level-headed and then he gets gold fever and he goes a little crazy and and this he's not it's not the jewels that he's interested in it's the power but it's that same kind of of turn and of course the treasure of the Sumerajo is written you know decades i mean hundreds of years after uh kipling's story but it's 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 a similar sensibility just with uh with power instead of the the gold this time yeah i was actually going to say that treasure of the sierra madre it, it would have been too on the nose not only was he considering bogart but they're also going to be, you know, treasure hunters and then have a falling out. It almost right. seems too much. It's very clever to switch it to power. And it also, it just fits with what happens earlier in the film. I mean, the way, the fact that they're doing this at all, it's this ridiculously arrogant, power hungry yes. kind of thing to do, even though it's ostensibly for money. The fact that they even consider doing this, let alone actually attempt it, uh, shows just how susceptible they are, uh, to think of themselves so highly. So it makes perfect sense that one of them would go a little too far and, quite literally try to play God. So you talk about the the power thing where one of them kind of gets caught up in it. I was trying to justify it to myself of why this why this character would get caught up in his own power kind of thing. And it kind of reminded me of um, the survivorship bias of some wealthy people where mm-hmm. or or successful people. You know you'll you'll hear, hear a lot of um talks where they talk about how how to become wealthy. Right. And it just happens to be the way that they became wealthy. <laughs> right. And a lot of people that do the exact same thing would find themselves completely failing in that regard, right? And so that kind of happens in the story where they, uh, this story more so than the short, or uh, this movie more so than the short story, really, they have a lot of lucky turns. Like they, and they, they even acknowledge it to some extent. They're cognizant, especially of the arrow part, where they're going to, they're even willing to say, they're going to go out there and say, yeah, it was actually just luck. It was, it was this, this thing. And then they decide to wait, actually, it might be to our advantage to make them, to make them think, not us think. 
that uh, we're some sort of gods. And so along the line, because of the streak of luck, they the uh, Danny kind of fools himself into believing that it's destiny, that it's fate, because of all of this luck that's con- that seems contingent on the rest. He keeps getting heads. He keeps rolling sevens, whatever you want to say. He's just on a hot hand, and then he believes himself to deserve it, to be destined for it. There's not a lot of lessons in the movie, but I'm curious if there's some sort of imperialist lesson in that regard of, of whether or not imperialism is some sort of hot hand that you play mm, and that yeah. you really kind of go, you're trying to get into the record books almost because a lot of a lot of empires is like and i would say the british empire were cognizant of this when they were when they were doing it is thinking about getting as large getting as large of an empire you can to be remembered for how large your empire was like a high score king of the hill kind of situation well there's some low-hanging fruit uh, of a response right here because you're talking about the british empire but they were talking about alexander the great and he is the quintessential example of exactly that you know the famous quote and alexander wept for he saw there were no more lands to conquer uh all that means is that he just wanted to see how far he would go there was no he didn't want more money or more power necessarily he just wanted to set the record basically and uh and they talk about Alexander the Great throughout this film, and you can see why now. It's not just that it makes for an interesting little historical parallel, and it's so brilliant because it becomes part of the plot itself. It's why he's able to achieve power, but it's simultaneously a warning about what's going to happen to him. And that's just such beautiful storytelling to marry those two things with one theme. Yeah, and I actually tried to follow up on the Alexander stuff by reading like Plutarch's lives on Alexander, and there's really just nothing. There was not that much there <laughs> except for confirming ex- confirming the the bit about Roxana. It, they, one thing that is interesting is uh, there's a difference. I I was assuming once they once they started talking about Alexander the Great, I really quickly went and just looked up the source material to see if there was some sort of like uh, uh, foreshadowing that I could kind of draw off of mm, that. Yeah. And there's, I, I was assuming that by the the woman that he met in the village in the movie, I, I was assuming there was actually be some sort of real love there rather than just, um, I, I don't know what to call it. I, I think he was just looking for an heir, uh, someone to give yeah. him great heirs. Uh, right. But in Alexander, he actually fell in love with Roxanne. At least this is the way that Plutarch described it. Like he described it as this, as actually really kind of, it, it, after the fact, it was problematic for Alexander. And in fact, after Ale- after Alexander died, uh, Roxana killed his other wives, um, or at least one of his other wives and son, so that they would have more legitimacy to uh, to take over Alexander's um, conquests. Uh, but it was interesting, as I thought that there was going to be like some sort of tension with the love story, where uh, Alexander, one of the things that he did when he went into new places was he really kind of mixed the culture. He didn't impose culture on the people that he conquered. Again, this is coming from a Greek historian, though, so there there's definitely a little bit of rosy yeah. uh, uh, imperialism in this one. So th- there's probably a little bit more assimil- forced assimilation than, uh, than the Greeks would want to admit. But uh, I thought there was going to be a little bit more of a he was going to get more affected by the uh, the culture that he was in and actually kind of grow to like it. And that actually happened a little bit more in The Road to El Dorado than it did in this film. This film, there's not enough time for that. I was looking when I was going back over the film, the time in which he's considered a god to the, his falling out is only like a third of the movie, if not even a little bit less. So they, I guess they didn't have enough time for that kind of story arc. But there's there wasn't there nothing much actually came out of me going through the Plutarch's lives thing, except that Plutarch is actually a pretty concise writer. Uh, <laughs> it's not it's not hard to read. 
that part. He just has so many biographies that it's kind of annoying and big book otherwise. Thank you for taking one for the team there by looking into it at all then. Um, uh, you mentioned mixing cultures. Well, that's definitely what happens in the film. Whether that's actually fact or legend, they certainly uh, mix it in with the foreshadowing there. Every time they, they conquer a little city and then they you know take some of their stuff and then they move on and conquer the next one and they keep trading up like a game of red coat paperclip and by the th- by the time they're done, uh, they've got an entire kingdom. Yeah, their, their, their plan works uh, rather brilliantly. <laughs> they really thought with a company of trained riflemen and that and that uh and their knowledge of of warf of modern warfare they could uh they could roll through and son of a bitch they, if they didn't uh so a big part of this film uh is freemasonry uh which is not something you really see in films anymore as a, as an order uh i don't know how important it ever was but it's it, it's sort of fallen out of favor and out of style uh but it's a crucial part of the plot here uh, i actually took me a moment to realize what was happening in the beginning it's another way the film felt very modern to me is it kind of makes you wonder why he looks concerned when he sees the watch what the code words mean and you sort of have to piece it together and at the end you kind of realize oh now i see what happened I feel like you should you should hit on the Freemason thing a little bit earlier when in the train car talking about lodges and Freemasonry. Yeah, well, that's let's say just to say that's when I started to figure it out. But in the beginning, I thought, what on earth is he looking at? I, at first, I just assumed he must have looked at a watch and seen the time and I had just missed it. But no, it's the symbol. I'm just not used to thinking about Freemasons, man. Yeah, so at first when he, so I was also confused when he was looking at the watch to try to figure out what was going on in his head. I even had like written down like, uh, why is he so focused on returning it? Is it out of fear? I was trying to figure out. I thought at first he saw the uh, the eye symbol, and he was afraid that uh, he was going to get um, I don't know caught or killed by this you know secret society kind of a thing. So I didn't I didn't realize that he was a fellow Freemason until uh, he joined him in the car. I also have it written down that the watch the 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 actual theft of the watch was at one of the worst possible times to do the theft because he's t- okay logistically and this really bugged me for a little bit i actually paused and just thought about it he um the uh kipling's character was um hunched over looking directly down because he was going to be he was getting a ticket or something right he was handing over money so his focus was on the area directly in front of him there's no way that hand gets in there and not in his peripheral vision he wasn't looking up like that's the kind of thing that you kind of try to make him do right is you make him look away from it but he's actually looking directly at the area in which the hand goes in and takes it right so i didn't really understand that 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 time for theft also we relied on the uh the cashier not saying anything which i guess you could kind of say like maybe there's some sort of honor among thieves kind of a thing i don't really know but it that for some reason like for just a second there it took me out of it when i was like that doesn't seem realistic at all you're bugged by the you're bugged by the logistical inefficiency of of the thief I later would be well. the The problem is that the the reason I kept it in my notes was because there was a few different times during the film where it seemed like their plans weren't very good, but worked out anyways. Mm. In particular, the 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 when they were I know we're getting away from the Freemason everything, but um, when they were in the hills and uh, they wanted the mules, the only thing that bullet did was cause a momentary distraction. <laughs> right. But then right. from that one momentary distraction, they were able to take on five guys. It didn't seem like it was justified. It, I, they could have just had anything else. Like, it was kind of clever, the the idea of setting up spitting of the different things. I'm like, I bought that, but I didn't buy going from a momentary distraction to being able to take out these five guys without any injury or any sort of payment on their part. It was just they were so much quicker and stronger than these guys. And that one kind of got into a little bit too much territory. 
you're, you probably hit on something here, which is that the film is showing us very early on that, yeah, these guys are kind of clever, but they're also just sort of doing stuff and, and they're making hay out of the chaos that they, that they sow. So, because that's their whole plan too, is, well, how are you going to conquer this country? Well, we'll just go help some warlords and then we'll overthrow them. And it's like, well, you're kind of leaving out a lot of the details there, buddy. You're kind of just assuming that you're going to figure stuff out in the moment. But that's exactly, that's our introduction to the character too, is he just sees an opportunity, takes it. It doesn't do a particularly good job of it, but it all works out anyway because he's a Freemason. And then they do that exact type of thing the entire film. And that's kind of how, like, if there's any sort of uh, metaphor, it's kind of for the British Empire as a whole, is they kind of, after their first initial successes, they kind of get away with doing the same thing again and again on a global scale. And it just keeps kind of working out for them for a long time. And they get lucky in a lot of regards, and then, but then they and they can just keep repeating it until, like a house of cards. Like uh, the way I kind of think about this movie in general is, uh, it's one lucky break after another until the first moment of bad luck, and then all comes apart. The very first time anything bad happens yeah, to them, yeah. any sort of bad luck, which is the bite on the cheek, it everything comes apart, and it all goes immediately. And the luckier they get, the more they press their luck. Right. Which is again that kind of feeds into the. Uh, the survivor bias thing is they actually they will con- they can convince themselves through their own narrative that they've experienced that they are destined for greatness and then following that along they eventually they'll keep taking risks until it becomes almost like an addiction and it inherently will cause itself to fail which that i'm kind of getting into another thing but that's kind of uh one of kipling's bigger themes over the course of his writing is uh hubris and power before the fall and so there's this i'm gonna get way off but uh there was a lot of talk about Kipling uh, in, in the early 20th century as a fascist. And there's actually this essay by Orwell talking about like probably the most an- famous anti-fascist, I would say, maybe ever, uh, at least in the 20th century. Orwell actually goes out of his way to say Kipling wasn't a fascist. He was certainly uh, a racist, an imperialist, a jingoist, but he wasn't a fascist because he, in this movie and in most of his other right or in the short story for Kipling uh, in the short story and along with other a lot of other um, uh, things that he writes uh, Kipling advocates for a kind of federalism where as you conquer the places you leave a lot of their ruling structure intact but you just bring the benefits of white culture to them and it just improves their lives and that's kind of what happens in the film is uh, a lot of the structures kind of stay in place when they go but they they have this sort of like top guy um, now that Danny kind of takes that spot who has these decrees and these rules for the tribes to kind of follow but he doesn't he doesn't he doesn't rule them through fear he doesn't rule them through iron like uh, he doesn't ru- make sure like he actually stops the beheading he it, they're they're kind of showing like there is some sort of rule through fear that exists currently and he starts ruling through this basically inherent bestness of western society and culture which is definitely a theme in Kipling's writing oh, I mean and certainly the the depiction of the uh, Kafir stands is, you know, very <laughs> one-dimensional, uh, for sure. Uh, I mean, there's, I mean, that's that's definitely a downfall of, of Kipling. You know, what makes Kipling's uh, uh, writing very dated, beyond kind of the philosophical elements. I mean, it, it is just very, you know, they are just there for the plot device. Whereas uh, uh, Danny and Peachy are such interesting characters and and have such fun. And then, you know, the brown people that have to be conquered are are just there as brown people that need to be conquered. 
Yeah, there's even a joke about that where they say, you know, oh, different, all these different wives, well, different customs. And then you think, well, okay, maybe they're showing a little bit of tolerance here, but then he throws it back in his face when he sees them kicking a head around and says, well, different customs, like, like maybe different customs aren't so great. Now, granted, those are not the best examples of cultural diversity that you want to embrace, which is polygamy and beheadings, but, but, but right, but it's not, it, it, there's really not a both sides type of argument to that. It's really just, this yeah. is a strange, savage place, and that's why we're going to be able to conquer it, I guess. Right, right. That's part of, uh, part of what, um, Orwell does with that is, uh, Orwell actually says in it where, um, uh, a lot of people have, uh, gone after Kipling. A lot of people that are more quote unquote educated, uh, than, than Kipling kind of like laugh at Kipling's expense, but Kipling endures. Part of it is because there's a natural thing to, if you really believe your culture is superior, you're gonna kind of think like Kipling. Like, uh, I, there's, it was strange. So, uh, not to bring in current events too much, but, you know, watching this film, um, specifically as an American during the Charlottesville events, it was interesting where, honestly, it was almost nostalgic for a different type of racism, a racism that didn't hate, right? I know what you're it saying. Was, it was yeah. like, there's like a, it's like a, it's a misled, affable kind of racism, and but it's at least not strictly despising people. These, the guys in this movie, like they, 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 they kind of took advantage of the locals, like when they're in that little caravan, um, or I don't know what to call it, but the line of people that was crossing the border, they didn't, right. they, they were taking advantage of them and kind of making fools of them when they were pretending that, that also brown face, but, uh, yes. that was, it was, yes. it was pretty light, at least like in context where it, uh, I think the only person we're like really brought it up is I could, at least they didn't look directly at the characters when they were going through the, um, the checkpoint and like right. they bought it. But Kip, the Kipling's character is the only one that says like, oh, you fooled me kind of a thing. Or yeah. at least they didn't push the 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 brown face is especially bad if the characters in the film buy it when you wouldn't buy it in real life. But they didn't push that one too far, at least. What did you guys think about how how funny and amusing the, the movie was throughout for, you know, uh, uh, when you lay out the, the story points about these kind of, of thieves and scallywags, you know, uh, throwing over warlords to take over a country. It's really, I mean, part, you know, largely the dialogue and, and how good Kane and Conrad are together, but it's, it's so funny and amusing. They're just such, such great, uh, a timing and chemistry together. I just didn't know if you guys, since I don't think either one of you had seen it before, if you were, uh, surprised by how funny it was or knowing Kane and Connery from, you know, later in their careers, were you kind of expecting it to be that kind of lightheartedness or, or did it take you by surprise? That it was kind of this almost Lawrence of Arabia type setting. And then you have these very, uh, silly characters in a lot of ways. Uh, I thought the dialogue was the delivery was very loose and light, which I actually enjoyed. And I think there was actually even something I saw when I was just like scouring the normal like Wikipedia stuff, where uh, Kane Kane was consistently concerned that um, Houston would not give them many directions and like tell them like uh, wouldn't say very many things about whether or not they're doing a good job. And he was basically saying, "I'll tell you if it's wrong." And so Kane and uh, Connery have a very loose relationship in this movie, and it, because of that, it's very believable. They they almost never overact or anything at any part during this movie. It's the dialogue is pretty quick and sometimes even quiet uh, uh, and awkward almost, but it, it feels real because of it. And it doesn't seem like they were trying to go for perfection. It wasn't stage acting at all. And so, yeah, I actually, I thought the delivery was great. Uh, some of the, the humor, I, I'd say it hit me about 50% of the time. The other time was just, all right. It reminded me a lot of just England in general. I just, whenever I saw them, I just thought about England, the attitudes of Britain, 
right. where they were kind of just like um, they they got themselves into like such a, a, a such a bad corner in the in the um, in the mountains that they just yeah. had to laugh, and it was that arrogance it was that or not arrogance but it was that um it was that just kind of attitude of like live the best life you can do amazing legendary things and then laugh and then that laughter that attitude is what saved them uh right. from like causing this avalanche which of of all the things that happened that was the one that stuck out to me the most as far as outlandish things where it was there it was their laughing at mm-hmm. almost dying after their wonderful lives that caused right. this avalanche that saves them. That actually was the number one thing I was thinking of when he asked if, about it being funny. Um, and that actually was like a turning point, or I thought it was going to be a turning point in the movie, because when that happens, it's like the first really fantastical thing, I think, that happens. And I think I thought, what kind of movie is this going to be? That's actually when I first thought of Gilliam, by the way. Um, and I wondered if the rest of the movie was going to have that like Forrest Gump quality of like just ridiculous things happening by accident all the time. And there's still a lot of coincidences, but it gets way more serious after that. That ends up being the the, the peak silliness sort of um but yeah no uh, to answer uh holden's question i was genuinely surprised at how funny it was which is true of a lot of older films but it i think it's because uh we are very segmented with movies these days when you have a film that's funny it's just a comedy and it's almost only funny it's al- it does almost right. nothing else maybe you'll mix comedy with romance right you'll get a rom-com but comedies are almost exclusively about comedy and you just don't get that many laughs in other types of films and i feel like this is a comedy in the more classical sense in the shakespeare sense you know he had quote unquote right. comedies but the comedy was in the crazy coincidences and the weird surprising way and things would fo- unfold and it was more about surprise and improbability than it was about set up punchline so i thought yeah i thought this was more of a comedy in the old sense and uh, i really enjoyed it i really enjoyed the comedy aspect of yeah. it because you can't you can't do this film without that because again everything else that happens in it is so awful and serious but even like when they get to Kafiristan and, and each you know warlord you know, and do you have any enemies oh enemies all around they they pee they pee in the they pee in the oh <laughs> shocking shocking that's <laughs> they just go to the next one and I, all those little all those little kind of throwaway things like that were just I, I just yeah that's that's one of the things that really attracted me besides just the spectacle when I watched it as a kid when I watch it as a 10 year old and a 13 year old, I mean, just that kind of rapport and that just kind of, I just, I just love that stuff. I mean, that's really what the through line for me was as a, as a kid. And I grew to appreciate the, you know, the more uh, comments on colonialism, you know, as I got older, but uh, certainly that, that just kind of Butch and Sundance esque, you know, repertoire back and forth. That That's the stuff that really as a kid hooked me into it besides just the spectacle and, and, uh, and, and the adventure and action of it. I like the Freemasonry aspect of it because at least it gave me an opportunity to kind of like go learn about Freemasonry, just like this strange, this strange thing that, I mean, when it's, when Freemasonry is used in um, other contexts, it's almost always the, um, as a, as a secret society kind of thing. And like with a lot of evil other kind of aims where the majority of people in it are just kind of like, it's kind of an odd thing. I wouldn't become a Freemason, but I could see the benefit of, uh, of the, the, the of using these sort of barriers to push yourself in a direction of that you think it's would make you a better person because it's very open-ended. You can, you can choose whatever you want as far as um, leveling up as it was in uh, Freemasonry. Yeah. It's, it's certainly the, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of the few th- times I can remember in film where Freemason wasn't just a, a conspiracy. <laughs> right. I mean, it's a conspiracy yeah. of, of, of fate, but it's not a conspiracy in the sense that, yeah, the secret society, like even a few years later, Christopher Plummer played a, Sherlock Holmes and uh, Murder by Decree. I don't know if you guys know that movie. And uh, it's 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 Sherlock Holmes uh, hunting Jack the Ripper. It's based on a novel. It's it's a really good movie. Um, it's actually directed by Bob Clark, the guy who did uh, 
a Christmas story. Oh, um, wow. He's got a, a very weird, diverse uh, filmography. Yeah, what a renaissance man. Yeah, but I mean, in, the, in that one, uh, the you know, just to spoil a little bit, the, the, the conspiracy of why Jack the Ripper is never found and caught, including by Sherlock Holmes, is that he's a mason and the masons are protecting him. So that's generally the kind of use uh, Freemasons get, you know, as a plot device in movies and, and novels is, is that that kind of thing is a cabal, not not a, a, a brotherhood. So that the brotherhood aspect is really highlighted in uh, Man of Be King is, is really interesting, I think, too, because that's for, certainly the first since I saw it at nine or ten, the first time I had heard of anything about what a Freemason, even had the word Freemason and started to understand it was a society and a brotherhood was from this movie. So, I mean, I might have been at 12, I might have been a, a, a good recruit for them because <laughs> all I knew of it was not as a, a, a conspiracy theory, but as a, uh, a as, you know, Peachy and Danny uh, get some good breaks because of it. Yeah, a cool adventurers club basically was, it, right. it, it, it's almost like a commercial for Freemasonry. And uh, it's interesting right. that you mentioned kind of using uh, Freemason, both of you guys mentioned it as you just sort of being this mysterious organization. That kind of mirrors what we were talking about in the beginning about this blank slate of a country that's closed off from the world. So you can write anything you want about it and maybe it happened. Uh, Freemasons, I guess, are the same thing. It's a, it's a, pa- the paradox of a super secret society that everybody knows about, uh, but it's secretive enough that you can have them be any kind of villain you want uh but that also means you can do the opposite and you can make them sort of into interesting good guys uh but i like the way you put put it earlier a uh, conspiracy of fate i don't think you can do a better uh for a description of the film uh their destinies are sort of written in who they are from the beginning it, you feel like it had to end the way it did they were always going to keep doing these things until one day uh it bit back basically Right. Well, just in the beginning, when they, you know, when the Kipling character turns them in because they're about to, to blackmail somebody, and then after, you know, they kind of get off the hook from that. They go back and blackmail the guy to get money for the, <laughs> the same guy to get right. money to yeah. get money so they can do this adventure, which is just they they are who they are. This is what they're going to do no matter what. They, yeah, whether they died in Kafiristan or getting knifed for stealing the wrong guy's watch on a train, they were going to end some way. They were not going to go home. <laughs> and ever sit by the fire with a wife and read a book. They were always going to push it until it ended somehow bloody. Yeah, and they weren't even going to take their treasure and go home and be millionaires like they had the opportunity to. They couldn't even do that. The The pushing their luck was the whole point for them. You can imagine if they got out of Kafiristan with that money, they would have gambled away or you know gotten a piracy, something. They they would not have gone home and just retired as rich men. Used it that to fund. Never- use it to fund the next adventure. There is one little thing I want to talk about real quick, which is I, I'm mostly just kind of asking your guys' opinions on this. Is the very very ending with the skull and the crown? Um, it didn't it didn't connect with me. I I just didn't understand because that to me the skull with the crown serves a purpose of verifying that they did it. But at no point during the film did I believe they hadn't have done it, hadn't done it. Like I could, I could see that maybe they could have contrived something where it could have maybe, maybe Kipling was suspicious that this was just another con that they were trying to play on them, that like he was going to tell them this grand story, then ask for money or, or something. I don't know. And then that it would turn out that they would had faked it. But at no point did I not believe that the story had happened when the ending seemed to just be a way of confirming that the story had happened. Yeah, I think uh, I, you, I think you've hit upon something. I think in the film, and Holden, you can tell me if you agree with this, I really think that we're supposed to be questioning the whole time because it's so fantastical. I think maybe if they'd cut to the frame story a little more often to remind you that he was just telling a story, maybe you see Kipling's reaction a little more, uh, it would have been more obvious, and that at the end you're supposed to go, oh, wow, it's real. Although I thought it was going to be much more ambiguous than that. I thought he was going to have one of those Alexander coins or something, right, and just lays it on the table. Even just the way the fall from the bridge is filmed, and and that line is, and it's a lot of that dialogue from the uh, 
uh, in the beginning, there was some dialogue that was lifted right from that short story. And that line about the, you know, he fell, I forget how it goes, he fell down and down. And that, that, 30 that, minutes. He said he fell for 30 yeah, minutes. Yeah. Right. And some, and some of what, and what you were saying early, Slappy, about uh, how Kipling endures, uh, kind of despite his, <laughs> his shortcomings, as part of it, he's just a very poetic and good writer. And some of that, you know, some of his, his, his his words have such poetry and language. That's really what the way Houston describes it is. I mean, that's what really attracted him as a child when he was reading him and why it, and he said he can, you know, there are great swaths of Kipling. He could have quoted, you know, on his deathbed that just stuck with him just because the, the music of the language. And so that's part of it. And so I think that's part of it. Cause when they, you know, on the, the slow motion thing and him falling, 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 like, are you, is this myth now? Are you really supposed to believe it in there? Bonk. Yep. There it is. I went to the bottom. Once I got off of that, once I got uncrucified, I went to the bottom of the chasm and, you know, two weeks later, whatever here, I found his head. So here's the proof. Cause you know, the way the, the language and the way it's filmed and it is so fantastical, even though we're obviously, enthralled in the story just you know emotionally with it and just as a movie we're watching it enjoying it and yeah i think that's just that that last little bit like you know this is all fantastic take a look here <laughs> here's the proof that i'm not making this up or exaggerating here it is yeah but i i do think that is something that was sort of a missed opportunity then whether the film did it or whether it's on you or the film slappy i'm not really sure but i do feel like the film was expecting us to doubt it more so that that lands at the end. Right. And it, while it didn't land on that, it does actually make me reconsider one of the things that I did feel, which was it did bring a sort of realism to this fantastical story, which was, so I'm telling you all this story of all, all this, like, and th- cause the thing is a lot of ways, um, and they even mentioned this in the movie where they would rather be them than any person, any other person on earth or something like that, or they'd rather be them than some specific high person. Um, which is after all of this legend, after all of this adventure, he's dead now. And you get to see his decaying skull. This is this is what he is now after all of that. And it kind of brings it back down to earth, you could say. I think that they were going more for the verifying this tall tale thing, but it kind of works in that way, I guess you could say. It works in the way that he achieved everything he wanted to. Here's the crown, but he's also just still a skull. Oh, yeah. I see. OK, that, see that actually now that actually that's so concrete that I actually might believe they actually intended that where he's. Yeah, it's a skull. It's a decaying, ugly, horrified skull that did, I think he didn't have a beard still a little bit. Uh, that has a crown on it, and that's the legacy. This dead person, the human is dead. Yeah, all that well, the crown. That's that's a little less Kipling than it is Shelley. That's Ozymandias right there. Right, and um, because it's, and because it's Houston and Kipling, you know, and and that runs under the credits. That's part of why you never get like a real good look at the at the skull once he walks out of the room. You see that? I mean, you can see it, but you can't really. You know, he's not Tarantino. Tarantino would have had an eyeball and a, you know, <laughs> a, very, a very just. Disgusting Sean Connery head there with a with a crown on it. Yeah, and that it wasn't going for that effect. Certainly, no, it's more of a timeless shot. As my last comment, I'd say maybe uh, one of those famous lines from Ghostbusters when uh, you know Ray, if someone asks you if you are God, you say yes. <laughs> I'd say maybe you know take Peachy and Daddy's example. Maybe don't say yes. Maybe, maybe you just say, say no. Uh, no, 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 I'm not. Actually, I'm no. Wild them in the end, you got hit. You can have flaws, problems, but wild them in the end, and you've got a hit.